be. It's lovely to have the Wicks with us, and it's great to have Alwood talk so fast before I talk, because I now feel I can talk as fast as I like, and I won't be the fastest talker of the day, which is great. Um, so, good morning, everyone. We are currently in a series looking at Abraham. Abraham is a really, really important figure in the Bible. We find stories about him in the book of Genesis. That's right at the start of the Bible. But actually, he comes all throughout the Bible. He's mentioned 75 times in the New Testament alone. So 2,000 years later, after his life, they were still talking about him. He's hugely significant. But actually, I don't want to start with Abraham this morning. I want to start today a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I want to take you to one of the most iconic movie scenes there has ever been, which comes in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, where there is this showdown between Darth Vader, boo, and Luke Skywalker. Yay! And there's a spoiler coming here, okay? So if you haven't seen the Star Wars films and you think you might like to, this is the point at which to put your fingers in your ears. In this really famous scene, there's this showdown between the good and bad, and Darth Vader is trying to lure Luke Skywalker to the dark side. And he's telling him, if you come and join me, we can rule the galaxy together. But Luke refuses. He refuses to be drawn across. And so Darth Vader starts to kind of tease him and goad him and try and annoy him. And he starts asking about his father, which is kind of a touchy subject if you're talking to Luke Skywalker. And then we get this great moment of reveal. The infamous line from Darth Vader, no, I am your father. And you're meant to hear the gasps around you as you're in the cinema. He's Luke's father and you're processing, what on earth does this mean? He's his father, what does it mean? And there's actually, I've discovered a whole kind of subgenre of YouTube videos, which are people's reactions to that moment. If we had more time, I would show you some. It's well worth going to YouTube, having a look. There's all these people who set up their friends or their kids, set a camera to secretly record them while they watch that scene. And you see this great shock at this moment of revelation comes. Well, a long time ago in a galaxy not quite so far away, a guy called Paul, the apostle, one of the guys uh, commissioned by Jesus to get the church started, was writing to Christians in Rome. He's talking about the importance of having faith. And when he's doing that, he describes this guy, Abraham, as the father of us all. He says that Abraham is the father of all people who have faith. And for some of us, that might be the same kind of weird kind of shock revelation. It leaves us all those questions of, what does this mean? What's going on? How is he our father? If we're Jewish by birth, it might be a bit easier to understand because we might be descended from him. But actually, it still raises the question, why does it matter? Why is Paul telling these Christians, your father is Abraham? What does that really mean? Why should we really care? And so that's the question we're going to explore today. And really what we're doing is this uh, preach from this series is helping us to say, how does Abraham fit in the whole big story of the Bible? How does Abraham really link to us and uh, fit with us? So we're going to be looking particularly in Genesis 15. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. But also we'll be moving through the Bible quite a bit as well. So to start understanding Abraham, we've got to understand that he's actually not the start of the story. We don't meet Abraham or Abram as he is at that time until Genesis 12 which means there's a whole 11 chapters of the Bible before he even appears on the scene. And we've got to realize that he is a key point in the continuation of that story. The story actually starts, of course, right at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, with God creating the world, God creating a perfect world, just as things should be. And he creates that beautiful garden in Eden. 
and places there Adam and Eve, the first humans. And that is God's kind of plan A. That is what God wants. That is what each one of us is made for, to be God's people, that was Adam and Eve, to be living in God's place where he lives with them, that was that garden in Eden, and to be living under God's rule and living under his blessing. But, as you probably know, the story doesn't stay too good for too long. Things quickly go wrong because actually to enjoy everything that God had created like that was conditional on the obedience of Adam and Eve. They were told there was one tree they weren't to eat from, but they do eat from it. And in that moment, everything gets destroyed because they've sinned. They've turned their hearts away from God and they said, we're trusting someone else rather than God. We're loving something else rather than God. We're believing that this thing will be better for us than God is. Everything gets ruined. And just in the third chapter of the Bible, we have this huge problem where humans get sent out of the garden. They're no longer God's people. They're no longer living in God's place. And they're actually no longer under his rule and blessing. Actually, now they're receiving the curse of God. Now they receive death. They receive spiritual death because they're cut off from God, that wonderful life source that gave them life. And they experience physical death at the end of their days. And then what happens from Genesis 4, the next chapter, through to Genesis 11, just if we meet Abraham, is we get this repeated cycle of humans sinning about God being gracious, of humans not trusting God, of turning their hearts away from God, living in rebellion against him, but then of God being gracious. That means showing them favor and goodness, even though they are totally undeserving. So the very next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, you meet a guy called Cain who kills his brother Abel out of pure jealousy. And then Cain's really worried that people are going to track him down and kill him. But God shows him grace, shows him undeserved favor by putting a mark on him so that other people wouldn't hurt him. A few chapters later, we get the story of Noah and the flood. And there, there's huge sin. Everyone's turned their hearts away from God. The world, we're told, was full of wickedness and full of violence. And that's why God has to send the flood. But then also, there's the grace of God. There's his undeserved favor in that he says, I'm going to pick Noah and his family, and I'm going to preserve them through the flood. Nothing special about them, no reason they deserve this, but I'm going to preserve them, and through them, I will preserve humanity. There's sin, but also then there's the grace of God. And then we get to chapter 11, the story of Babel, where God has told the people to uh, uh, multiply and spread out to fill the earth, and they go, no, we want to stay here. We're going to build a big city, a big tower. We're going to keep ourselves together. We're not going to scatter like God has told us to. They deliberately rebel against God. It's an act of sin. But then we're reading chapter 11 and we're going, well, where's the act of grace? Where's God's undeserved faith? We've seen this pattern, sin, grace, sin, grace, sin, grace. We've got the sin. Where's the grace? And to understand where that is, we have to turn the page and turn to the next chapter. We turn to chapter 12. That's when we meet Abraham. The call of Abraham and the promises made to him are God's act of grace, his undeserved favor, and the back of the sin of Babel. Because what happens when God calls this guy Abraham, he calls him to leave his father's home and the land they're in to go and to follow him. And he makes promises to him. He makes what the Bible calls a covenant, which is an agreement between two parties. And in this agreement, God is promising things that he is going to do. And when we look at each of these promises he gives, we find what he's going to do is he's going to fix everything that's gone wrong earlier in the story. Everything that went wrong when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and got chucked out, God, through these promises to Abraham, is going to put right. It's a reversal, a restoration, a return to plan A to what God wants. 
So, for example, God promises about people. In chapter 15 of Genesis, God says to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He says, you're going to be the father of this great nation, many, many offspring, as many as the stars in the sky. He'll be the people of God, just as Adam and Eve were the people of God in the garden. Then he talks about place. God says, chapter 15, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He's saying, I've taken you out of there, but this land, I'm going to give it to you to possess. They're going to be God's people in God's land. It's the place where God is going to dwell once again with humans, just as he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden in Eden. And finally, he promises to Abraham his blessing and his rule. He says to Abraham, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or in chapter 12, just before, he said to him, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Just as Adam and Eve were under the rule and the blessing of God, Abraham and his descendants are once again going to come under the rule and the blessing of God. When God calls Abraham, it's the act of grace, undeserved favor, which follows human sin at Babel. And it's a promise to restore everything that's been lost. It's the way that humanity can get back to what we're made for, what God wants us for, what everything was meant to be like in the Garden of Eden. And the rest of the Bible is the whole story of how this gets worked out. And so as we're reading the rest of the Bible, we're meant to constantly be asking, is this the fulfillment of the promises? Is this the restoration of everything that's being lost? How is it going to happen? How is God going to do it? Have we got there yet? And so the story continues in Abraham's life. He's waiting for the fulfillment of these promises, but he reaches crisis point. Because there are big, big promises, and for Abraham, there were big, big problems in the way of these promises. Every single one of these promises hinged on having offspring, having kids. There's going to be many people who be God's people. If there's no people, no offspring, there's no one to be in God's place. If there's no people, no offspring, there's no one to be under God's rule and blessing. Everything hinged on him having children. But Abraham and his wife had no kids, and they're getting older and older and older, and the chance of them having kids are getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And actually, Abraham thinks that one of his household, one of his servants will be his heir, will kind of stand in in place of his own child. In chapter 15, verse 2, Abraham's talking to God. He says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? He's saying, how are these promises going to be fulfilled? I've got no kids And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his servant. And Abraham said, Behold, you give me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. But in this moment of crisis, God's response is to reaffirm his promise to Abraham. He says in verse 4, Or the behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and God says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He reaffirms his promise that he's going to give him his own son. And then he reaffirms in chapter 15 the promise that they will have this land. They will live with God in this land. But Abraham's still struggling. He can't get it. He can't see how it can happen. He says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know? How can I really know that I shall possess it? And this is where it gets really, really odd. If you read this story before, it gets very odd. God says to him, bring me a heifer, a cow three years old, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. 
And we kind of think, what on earth is going on here? God calls him to take some nice little animals, nice little goats like this. And he gets them and he cuts them in half. And he creates this kind of path. So he lays them down in two rows. rows, And it's like he's creating a little kind of path in between them. And we think, what on earth is going on? And then God causes this deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And he talks to him about these promises, talks to him about things that are going to happen in the future. And then we read, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of animal. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, in the Bible, fire is often symbolic of God. It's about holiness, which is kind of the essence of what God is. Think of uh, the pillar of fire in the wilderness of the Israelites, which leads them. It's a picture of God being with them and leading them. When in this vision, this fire goes through this path of the animal carcasses. And the meaning isn't entirely clear. There's evidence that in the ancient world where Abraham lived, people would sacrifice animals as part of covenant-making ceremonies. And it's a way of saying, I'm really committed to this. It's a way of kind of uh, uh, putting your stamp of commitment to it. But actually, it seems there could be something even more going on. Because there's also evidence in the ancient world, evidence in the book of Jeremiah and the Bible as well, that what people sometimes did when they made covenants is they took these animals, they chopped them in half, they made the two rows to make the kind of pathway, and then each one in this covenant would walk through between the carcasses of the animals. And what they were effectively saying by doing that is they were saying, if I don't keep my side of this bargain, you can do to me what we have done to these animals. They're walking through saying, I am going to keep this, and if I don't, you can chop me in half, just like we've chopped these animals in halves. But what's really interesting is in this vision, only the fire pot, only God goes through the animals. Abraham doesn't go through. Abraham's not asked to. He's not encouraged to. He's just sitting there watching this thing happen. What God is saying through this weird, uh, weird thing and through this vision is that he and he alone is responsible for fulfilling these promises. He's committing himself to this covenant. He doesn't make Abraham do the same. He is saying, no matter what happens, I, God, will fulfill these promises. I will make them come into reality. It is all on him, and it is all going to be his work. So the promises made to Abraham were this promise to restore us back to what God wanted, back to the original design. And God has said that no matter what happens, he will do that. Which raises the question, how? And so the story continues. We start to walk through the rest of the Old Testament, and we're looking, how is God going to fulfill all of these promises? And God gives the law a couple of books later in the Bible. And he says to the people, if you keep the law, you're going to experience my rule and my blessing. And basically, he says, if you keep the law, you are going to inherit all those promises and the wonderful fulfillment that God had talked about. But then we keep walking through the Old Testament story, and we find that humans can't keep the law. That time and time and time again, humans fail. They are unable to live God's way. The law actually does nothing to help. In fact, we later learn the law only made things worse, because law came and caused rebellion against God to arise within humans. And you're meant to get to the old, end of the Old Testament and think, man, God has got a problem. He has promised to fulfill these things. He's walked through the animals. He said, I will do this. But actually, humans can't do their bit. Humans can't keep the law. How is he going to fulfill his promises? And that's when we turn over the page to the New Testament. 
That's when we meet Jesus. That's why God sends his own son to take on humanity, to come and live amongst us. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for these promises to be fulfilled and makes it possible for you and I to inherit those promises. We read about this in um, Galatians, one of the letters that Paul, the apostle, writes to a church in Galatia. And there he explains that actually it was always God's intention to send Jesus. He knew the law couldn't do it. When he made those promises to Abraham, he was always thinking of what he would do in Jesus. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises, the promises we've talked about, were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is telling us that when God made these promises to Abraham and to his offspring, he didn't actually mean the promises were for this great multitude of biological offspring that were coming. He was talking about one individual specific offspring, one descendant who would come from Abraham's line. It's a bit like uh, those awkward moments could easily happen in a big place like this where you see someone you know and they're smiling and waving and so you smile and wave back but then actually you realize rather awkwardly they were smiling and waving at someone behind you. It's like Jesus talks to Abraham, but he's looking behind him. Actually, he's talking further down the line. He's talking to the one individual offspring who would come. He's talking to Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom these promises are made. And in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, he's the one person who actually keeps God's law. He's the one person who lives perfectly. And then in his death, he deals with the problem of our sin, which separated us from God. So that means that the promises are received by Jesus, but then we can get involved through him. Because Paul finishes this chapter, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You've been clothed in him, covered by him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's saying we become Abraham's offspring, not by doing anything, not by any sorts of physical descent. We become Abraham's offspring. He becomes our father, through being united with Jesus, the supreme offspring of Abraham. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are clothed in him, we are united in him, and that means if he's earned and deserved and received all these promises, we being in him receive it too. That is how Abraham becomes our father. And it's worth noting here that Abraham's fatherhood of us is different from God's fatherhood from us. And that can be confusing because in the New Testament, God is called our father. We have been adopted by God and he showers upon us his love and we have intimacy with him. His spirit bears witness to our souls that we are children of God forever loved and secure. When we say Abraham's our father, we're kind of saying we are part of his clan, part of his family. He's part of his family line. And so Paul's explaining here that when we're baptized into Christ, We've put on Christ. Baptism is kind of the, uh, the seal, the confirmation of the faith and trust that we've put in Jesus. And we get united to him. And baptism is a picture of that. You're immersed in the water. You're utterly drenched in the water in the same way that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are utterly covered in him. It reminds me a bit of morph suits. You familiar with morph suits? These really odd looking things which you put them on and every single part of you is covered. It's like a onesie, but with the facing everything. And when you look at the person, the person obviously is there, but all you're seeing is the morph suit. 
because they are in the morph suit. They are kind of engulfed and covering him. It's like when God looks at us, we're there, but we are covered because we are in Christ. And so we receive what is due to him. Another way of thinking about it is a bit like a baby in the mother's womb. The baby in the mother's womb receives from the mother whatever she puts into her body. When she puts food into her body, the baby gets the food through her body. If she puts unhealthy things into her body, the baby gets those things through the womb into his body. He gets whatever the mother has because he is in the mother. When we are in Christ, we receive whatever Christ has, whatever Christ gets. And that's why Paul can say, if you're Christ, if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the one who has received the promises to Abraham. But now we get grafted into him. So we experience them too. We become heirs who inherit that wonderful restoration back to plan A, back to what God had always wanted for us. So friend, if you're a Christian here today, you are in Christ. You are hidden in him. You are engulfed in him. And that makes Abraham your father. That means that you are an heir of God's promises. All of the promises we'll hear about over these coming weeks, all of them you are an heir of through Christ. You receive that wonderful, wonderful truth that God's going to put to rights all the muck and mess and rubbish in the world and restore everything that's been broken. So Abraham is your father. Why does that matter? Why does it really kind of matter? What impact does it make on our lives? Well, let me give you three quick ways that the Bible, Paul particularly in Galatians 3, applies this, how this truth makes a difference to how we live. Number one is that just as God had declared through that vision, walking through those animals, he has done this all on his own back. He has done everything that is necessary. It is all about what he has done. And that means it's not based on what we do. The Bible talks about it as receiving this gift of grace, of undeserved favor through faith, which is literally just saying, I'm stretching out my hand to take hold of the gift which is already being given to us. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on what we've done. It's not based on what we do today. It's not based on things that we might do in the future. It's all based on what he has done in Jesus. And it's all received through faith. That means you don't have to try hard to be good enough to deserve to be uh, an offspring of Abraham and inherit these promises because you never could be. But Jesus, Jesus makes the way for us. There's a great statement in Romans 8.1 where um, Paul writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just so feel after our time of worshipping this morning and the, the truth that God was bringing to us, God just wants to speak that truth to some people here today. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can sing those songs that we can boldly approach God's throne of grace because he's done it all. And you know, I know that many of us will have been Christians for many years and will know this and could easily tick all the boxes and write all the right answers to some questions. But you know, I also know from my own life that it's a completely different thing to kind of know this as a written exercise and know it to an extent that it makes a difference in your life. We are so hardwired to not believe this. We're so hardwired to believe we need to do things to make God love us and we need to be a certain kind of person. We need to keep telling ourselves. And today I just feel God wants to come by his Holy Spirit and do that for some of us to remind us, no, no, you are loved and accepted and welcomed in regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what you will do. 
because it's all about Jesus. You've been grafted into Jesus. God looks at you. He doesn't see your imperfections. He sees Jesus' perfection because you are hidden in him. That's the first thing that our being an offspring of Abraham, him being our father, teaches us. It's all about what he has done. We don't have to do anything other than stretch out and receive. The second thing that this tells us, where it kind of really hits the road, is it tells us that all Christians are on an equal footing. Because if actually the way that we have come in to be inheritors of these promises is not about us or about what we've done. It's all about what Jesus has done. That means that every single one of us, whether our background, whatever we've done, is on an equal footing. We've all come in in the same way. That's why in that end of Galatians 3 bit we read, Paul does something a bit weird. Because in verse 27, he talks about us being baptized into Christ, having put on Christ. And in verse 29, he talks about that meaning that we're in Christ, which means we're offspring of Abraham. We receive the promises. But smack bang in the middle of that, he sticks verse 28, where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We kind of think, Paul, why are you going on a side note and putting that in? But he's trying to make the point, if it's about being in Christ, then all other distinctions that we might think of don't matter. It doesn't matter what our race is. It doesn't matter what our job is. It doesn't matter whether we're male or whether we're female. We might add, it doesn't matter if we're black or white, if we're Labour or Conservative, if we're young or old, we're pro-Brexit, we're anti-Brexit. There is no reason, he's saying, for divisions in the church. The church should be the most diverse and yet most unified place and group of people on the earth. Because Jesus says, whoever you are, whatever you're like, whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever it might be, come and come be grafted into me. And we're all coming in that same way. There is absolutely no place for division, for discrimination, for disunity within the church because we are in Christ, all on an equal footing. That's the second thing where this, uh, this truth makes a practical impact on our life. And the final thing where this makes a practical impact on our life, maybe the band could start coming back up, would be great. This tells us that we now have a great present. Because if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you now experience something of the fulfillment of those promises that God made to Abraham. You now are part of God's people, adopted as his child. You now actually are God's place. The Bible says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you ask the question, well, where does God dwell on earth now? He dwells in each and every Christian believer. You are God's place. You are the new garden of Eden, and you are under God's rule and under God's blessing. It tells us we have a great present right here and now, but it also tells us that we have an even better guaranteed future to come. Because see, there's a day when Jesus will come back and the total and utter complete fulfillment of these promises will come into reality. Where we will be God's people. This amazing, diverse, but wonderfully unified group of people. We will be in God's place, a perfect new creation. Where you know there won't be any temples, which is the place where God lives on earth. Because actually God will be everywhere, all around us. We won't be able to go anywhere and not have the closeness of God with us. And we will experience his rule and his blessing in utter perfection. All the things at the moment which kind of push against his rule, all the negative things, all sickness and sorrow and sadness, even death itself, will have been utterly, utterly defeated. We will be taken back to just as it was in the Garden of Eden, plan A. And actually, when you read the end of the Bible, the end is even better than the beginning. 
This tells us we have a great present, and we have an even better future. I'd love us just to respond by worshipping. This is the kind of truth which should make our hearts want to sing, because God has brought us in, not based on anything that we have done, but by grafting us into Christ. We have been inherited to those promises. We get to go back. Maybe for you this morning, the Holy Spirit is talking to you about that freedom from condemnation. And you actually need to, even as we worship now, to kind of step into that by boldly approaching God's throne of grace, knowing that he has made the way. Can I invite you to stand with me? I'd love to pray for us that the Holy Spirit will work these truths in our heart, and then the guys are going to lead us as we worship. Father, we thank you so much that when we as humanity rebelled against you, when we ruined the wonderful plan A that you had created, you were not happy to leave us in that mess. Thank you, you are a God who is so wonderfully gracious, so eager to show favor to those who are utterly undeserving. And I thank you that in the call of Abraham, you did that for humanity. You said, I'm going to promise to you, I'm going to take hold of you, I'm going to restore what's been broken purely out of my love and my grace. And we thank you that even though the whole Bible story shows us we were in a rubbish position, we could not do anything to get that ourselves, that you sent Jesus to make a way for us. Thank you that now we can be grafted into Jesus. We are hidden in him. We experience and we enjoy every single one of those promises. Thank you for our present experience of them now. Thank you for the guaranteed future reality of them in the future. And right now we say, come and stir our hearts with love and devotion and affection for you, that we might worship you for all that you have done for us. Come and speak that word. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not one bit. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Speak that truth to our hearts and stir us to give you the glory that is due to your name. Amen.